So tonight, uh, we continue in Titus. I'm going to be in Titus 1, verse 10, finish that up. Before I do that, to kind of help you, because this deals with false teaching. And, you know, I was, as I was reading this, I was thinking, it's, sometimes it's hard for us to grasp what they dealt with. Because in that early church, there was constantly false teachers. They were bombarded by people coming from within, working their way into the fabric of the life of those small churches. Paul would start a church, and immediately different types of people would come with their own version of Jesus. It was difficult for these young new believers to know what to believe. And so I'm going to give you kind of a context from the history of Baptist life in the last, in my lifetime, in, in my ministry life. Um, and I'm not picking sides of anything when I, when I talk about it, you'll see. I'm going to use terms that are not political, so if you don't think of any politicalness, I'm going to talk about being conservative, moderate, liberal. That's totally within the realm of faith and theology. Uh, conservative is people who tend to take the traditional orthodox doctrines, especially that the Bible is the word of God. It is inspired. As a result of that, it is without error and is without fault. It is truth without any mixture of error. People who tend to be more liberal tend to see it more as a man-made doctrine, things of that nature. Liberals tend not to believe in supernatural. I'm talking purely in terms of faith-based, uh, our faith. Whereas conservatives too, moderates tend to moderate between the two. You bring some social issues, they fall into it. So that means that we are a very conservative church. Regardless of your political, you may say, I'm not conservative, I'm a liberal, well, I'm fine. And we're not talking about your politics. We're talking about theology. They are separate. Do not make the huge mistake that many Baptists make of confusing being conservative in your theology and conservative in your politics. That bugs me. It really does. Now, uh, so those are two different things. So I'll say that. I'm also going to mention from a historical context the United Methodist Church. Come from a Methodist background. I am not insulting you. I'm not picking on Methodists. I'm stating things that are historical. So here's, here's why, because I'm going to talk about false teachers. Here's what I want you to see. At the end of the 19th century, going into the 20th century, in scholarship, in, in, in Christianity, there were movements that began to look at the Bible, especially the Old Testament, and began to remove what we would call the inspiration aspect out of it, and began to remove the supernatural element out of it. It began primarily in Germany, uh, especially, you don't care about some of this stuff, the Tübingen school, you can look all that, T-U-B-I-G-I-N, all that stuff. But, uh, and, and so this movement began, and something developed, different types of what we call criticism, all criticism means is the examination of. And they began to look, especially in the book of Genesis, at all these different documents that made up Genesis as opposed to coming from Moses. Okay. That began to creep into America in colleges and seminaries. And in the early 20th century, certain denominations that crept into them and it began to work itself into the preacher boys, like I was when I was a young seminary student, uh, and uh, into the way they were taught and what they began to believe. In 1944, T.B.A. Criswell became pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas. It was the largest church, I believe, in America at that time. It had 9,000 members. Then he grew it to 26,000. I know their church was a lot bigger than that, but you have to understand, back then, 9,000 was huge. You, you could only be as big as your auditorium held. They didn't do two services very often. It, most people felt, and some of you may have grown up this way, I've dealt with it in my pastorate. If you have two services, you have two churches. Well, that's not true. That's dumb. 
Uh, nowadays, I would tell you, if you don't have multiple services, you're probably not growing. Uh, that's how I look at it. But that was a different world back then. And so it was, this was a huge church. And the most influential, he was influential to presidents, politicians all across. But W.A. Criswell noticed something. During his time in the late 40s and 50s, the United Methodist Church and Southern Baptists were about the same number of membership, about 9 million. In fact, United Methodist is a little bit larger. Now, they were very similar. If you're older, you may have grown up in small towns where the Baptist Church and the Methodist Church were right next to each other. There's a ton of towns in Texas that if they list the church we look at, they're right by each other. Oftentimes in those towns, the only real difference would be that Methodists would baptize babies and they would booze it up during the Lord's Supper. Or they would take wine, as they like to say. We would say they boosted up. And they would dance. Because they didn't mind the alcohol, they would dance at the places where alcohol was. Everything else, the, the doctrines are almost always the same. And so a lot of times, for instance, uh, small, these small areas that can only afford a part-time pastor because the town was poor, the Methodist, the Baptist would go to the Methodist church when their pastor was there. And then the next week, the Baptist pastor would be there and the Methodist church would go. I mean, they just, they just did that. A lot of times, the youth group, if you were missing a youth minister, your youth may go to the other churches because they were pretty close to the same. Then things began to change. And what began to change is the preachers in the United Methodist Church began to teach a more moderate, liberal viewpoint. The members weren't that way. They didn't buy it. But, but, and then over time, over 50, 60 years, the church began to change, which is why United Methodists, in many ways, have not grown. But in the 60s and 70s, Criswell saw that. It concerned him. Then something else happened in the 60s. The Sunday School Board of the Southern Baptist Convention produced something called the Broadman Bible Commentary, a 12-volume set that was the, the Cadillac of commentaries. I used to have those. I don't have any more, primarily because the Cadillac's been replaced by a Lexus and a Mercedes and a BMW somewhere along the way that drive much smoother. The scholarship's a little suspect. So I think I gave them to Joe. Did I give them to you? You have one? All of them or just one? Maybe that's the problem. But anyway, I pick on him a lot only because I don't have to. But what happened in the first volume of Genesis Exodus, when you come to the first 11 chapters where you have the flood, creation, the flood, and all of that, the authors took some of the more moderating viewpoints of the sources and included that in the commentary and it caused a huge uproar. They actually had to redo the first book of the commentary of Genesis. W.A. Criswell noticed this and said, man, this is dangerous. We're starting to become like those other nominations. Now remember, in Dallas, Texas, where he's pastor, right by where he lived is Southern Methodist University. And this is where a lot of what was happening in Methodist Church was coming from. Also in the 70s, there was a series of presidents of the Southern Baptist Convention who have no real power per se because they don't tell us what to do, but it can influence certain things. It doesn't matter what. And the last one was a guy named Jimmy Allen, pastor of First Baptist Church in San Antonio where I grew up. And I remember Dr. Allen very well. He had fiery hair and he could preach all over the place. But he was pretty moderate. And that concerned W.A. Criswell. So what began to happen is W.A. Criswell got with a guy named Adrian Rogers, Charles Stanley, and a few others. And they said, we've got to make sure that our seminaries don't become like these other denominations. And the only way to do that was to gain control of the presidency of the Southern Baptist Convention. In 1980, I entered into ministry. And that was the same time all of this occurred. My first 10 years of as a young minister, I was observing what we call, we call the Baptist Wars. It's now called the conservative resurgence. You know why it's called that? Because the conservatives won. 
So when you win, you get to define the name of the war. And I was all over the place in what I believe because I knew people all all over the place. But I tell you all this because here's what happened. When the conservatives got back control, they got back control of the seminaries and they eliminated and ended the seminaries having any type of liberal theology. If you go to our seminaries today, they are not liberal at all. Now, there are other things. And they have gotten better at some things. Now, sometimes they're too rigid, like, you know, Paige Patterson, who was the, worked for W.A. Criswell when he's at Southern, Southwestern Seminary, wouldn't let women be professors over men, which was asinine, but he did that. And fortunately, he's not there anymore. But that's, now that, uh, now that was gratuitous on my part. I apologize for that. But being a graduate of Southern, Southwestern Baptist, which is the greatest Southern Baptist seminary and the greatest seminary in the world, I can do that. But all that to tell you is here's what happened. They saw that the problem was from within. It wasn't from without. People didn't join these churches and begin to tear the churches apart. The pastors, the leadership began to tear them apart. Today, to be blunt, I would not have anything to do with the United Methodist Church because I simply don't trust them in a lot of other denominations as well. I'm kind of an isolationist that way. I am so concerned about a lot of Protestant churches that I don't want anything to do with them unless I know them really well because of that very issue. Because I'm worried about what happens from within. The biggest threat to this church is if I start teaching you wrong or teaching you incorrectly. That's the biggest threat. You should always make sure whoever's your pastor has the view of, here's how you tell, what's their view of the Bible and what's their view of Jesus? Do they believe the Bible is the word of God, inspire, and as such inerrant and infallible? And do they believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation? He is God, fully God. Do they believe the incarnation and resurrection? If they believe in those two things, almost everything else will be okay. If they struggle at any one of those areas, quit worrying about whether they're a Calvinist or not. It has no bearing on anything. Quit worrying about the views of the end times. It has no bearing on any of that. It is purely about the Bible and purely about Jesus. Now, here's why I tell you this. Because we're coming to Titus. And the problem of Titus was the false teachers. Notice, in verses 5 through 9, I told you last week, he talks to the elders. Get your theology and get your life in straight. What you believe and how you behave. Verse 10, 4, in light of what he said, there are many, not a few, not a couple, many, notice this word, rebellious people. They are empty talkers and deceivers. He describes them. They rebel against God and they're believers. They talk empty. Notice what they say has no value, no meaning, no purpose. They are deceiving all of you, especially those of the circumcision. They were Jews. Now, there's a difference between being the Jew who came into it and a Judaizer. A Judaizer is one who believes you had to be circumcised to be saved. That's not what they were guilty of. Now, we see that in Galatians. They were from a Jewish background who came into the church. We're fixing to see what they did. And they worked from a leadership position. How do we know that? Because they could teach. They were empty talkers. They could deceive. The deception wasn't coming from without. The deception came from within. On Sundays now, I'm doing through Hebrews, and I'm talking about uh, the culture, that we're in in a collision with the culture. 
and I talk about no more relativism, and I talk about syncretism, and those things last two weeks. This week, I'm going to talk about the danger of drifting away. Understand this. The culture doesn't attack the church and take it over. The people who leave the church invite the culture in and give them free reign. That's what happens. Listen, if our, the culture came to, and tried to come to us and, and strong arm us, that wouldn't work. Because we're not going to let it happen. I'm not going to let it happen. Oh, well, we might get blasted in the media. We might get protested. I've been protested before. It's no big deal. If they block you view coming up, they'll move as soon as you hit them. I promise you. <laughs> they, I mean, unless you're driving a Prius, you're no, your car can take them, you know? The media's going to blast us. You know, if the media's, I, I think in my almost eight years here, the media has several times blasted us. We're okay. Okay? All of that can happen. The danger is if I open the doors and say, why don't you bring your view and come on in? Hey, you down down there at the, at the mosque or wherever the, I don't know where I is on community, or if we haven't had Islamic community much, why don't you come over here and read from the Quran for us and, and share your thoughts? Hey, you who practice Eastern mysticism, why don't you come and tell us how we can become more enlightened? Why don't those of you who deny the fundamental truth that all life from the moment of conception have value, why don't you come tell me where I'm wrong? Because I follow Scripture. Why don't you come tell us all the places that Jesus said, all the things you said he said, but he never said, because you don't know anything about what Jesus says. That's the danger. That's the deception. That's the empty talking. That's the problem. Notice what he says. Who must, I love this, be silenced. <laughs> don't you just like how Paul is so careful and delicate in how he handles False teaching, listen, false teaching and false teachers should never, ever be coddled. I hear people say, well, you know, David, you got to try to reconcile. No, you don't. There are a lot of things you would reconcile with as a pastor. I get that. Uh, we don't all agree upon something. Pick something. No, I'm not going to mention flags. That wouldn't be good. But... Uh, We didn't, I'm not going to mention no crosses on the building. Oh, there's a lot of things we can disagree on. And we can work to reconcile our differences. You teach what is false. You teach what is not true. Nah, none. I think Paul would, would say, if he was here today and use our terminology, be ruthless in ferreting out false teachings. Love the people. Give them a chance to repent, but you don't tolerate. You can't tolerate non-Christian teachings and beliefs and behavior to try to unify Christians. It doesn't work. Listen, I don't care how much arsenic you put in the water, there's not enough Kool-Aid to keep it from killing you. I just made that up. I like that one. We'll discuss it in staffing, whether it was effective or not. I don't know. Notice, because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things that should not, be, not, should not teach for the sake of 
dishonest gain. They benefit. Now, I find it interesting. The word for family is actually the word for house or household. And what I love about the New American Standard Bible is it rarely interprets. It almost always singularly translates. But for some reason, and they, instead of just saying household, they say families, which is an interpretation more than a translation. In his commentary on this, my mentor, Dr. Tommy Lee, makes a great point. He says it may be that what he was talking about were not family units, but the houses where the churches met, which makes a lot of sense. They came into those houses. Now, families is also good. It's the same thing. But in chapter 2, which you'll see next week when he talks about old men, young men, old you know, women and children, I mean, uh, young guys and young women, it, 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 the, the idea of the church as a whole makes sense. So he says this. They're upsetting them, which makes upsetting the church that meets. For, so we have a lot of small groups that meet at places. Can you imagine, you know, tomorrow night my, my connect group meets. If, there was, if I start teaching something false, it would upset my connect group. It would be problematic. Once in a while, I think we get word that one of the groups has a little issue about something. And, and I know that uh, uh, Joe handles all that. He's looking forward to Michael handling it, but Michael won't. Joe will still handle it. <laughs> but that sometimes happens. I love this part. There was a 6th century B.C. Crete, Cretan philosopher named Epimenides, who's well known. Remember, Titus was on Crete. Paul, Paul, this is great. This is his classic Paul. One of them, a prophet of their own, and every, he didn't. Everybody knew who he was quoting. Oh, I think it's fascinating in sacred scripture. There are times that pagans are quoted in the Word of God. I don't know what that does to your theology. But it makes it a lot easier for me to make use illustrations that people think are wrong. I can't tell you over the years. I can't believe you used that movie or that song as an illustration. Like, well, Paul, in sacred scripture that you hold so dear to your heart, used a pagan philosopher to make a point. So, I don't know. I think it's okay. I should not have at my very first church as a young youth minister. My wife scolded me forever. Use an illustration from the movie Body Heat. Yeah, I know. She was right. Now, some of you have no idea of that movie because you're just too young. <laughs> but fortunately, the church was so old, only about three people caught it. <laughs> but one of them was my wife. She caught it, and then I caught it. I'm not saying you should go watch the movie Body Heat. Don't do that. Just Wikipedia and it'll tell you the plot. He says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy, and gluttons. I mean, he slams his own people. Now, this is a generalization. I know Paul's driving home the point. You got people from your own group. Jews, they didn't come from Jerusalem. They came from Crete. They were probably what we call Hellenized Jews. They adopted a lot of Greek culture. He says, those Jews... Those guys have come in. And he says, they're just they're working for this on this game. He says, Epimenides said it best. They're just lousy people. 
Paul says, this testimony is true. So what Paul is saying in sacred Holy Scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, that a, that a sixth century pagan philosopher said something is true and he's putting it in Scripture. I love that. For this reason, because what Epimenides said, no, because they were teaching something that was false. For this reason, reprimand them severely. No, no little, not, not a slap on the head. Not, hey, brother, let's go have a cup of coffee over at the Christian Starbucks, and maybe, maybe you're just a little off. He says severely. Why? So that, or with the purpose that, in order that, it speaks of purpose or result, they may be sound in the faith. Now, you're not scolding them just to scolding them. You're not being hard just to be hard. But some people do. Oh, some people, you know, you got to understand, what's the reason that I'm going to be firm? To bring them back where they need to belong. To bring them back to the faith. Many times in my 42 years of ministry, I've had to talk to someone about something. And my goal is always that we can get where we need to be. You can get where you need to be. Sometimes they say, okay. Sometimes they don't. In the last two years, there's been a couple of instances in this church where we've had to talk to somebody about something. And just say, we love you. We want you to stay. But this is unacceptable. I didn't deal with that. Other staff members did. <laughs> but I, like, yeah, I'm behind you. No matter what happens, just don't mess up. But sometimes you don't have a choice. You love them. Yes, you love them. There's, at no point is love absent. Don't ever think that. But because we take a biblical approach to love, agape, and not the the Greek culture approach to love, eros, never used in the New Testament. We don't just say, well, I love you, so it's okay that you teach what will lead people straight to hell. No, I love you. I'm not going to let you do it. You need to get right back with God. So do that. Not paying attention to, here, it tells you kind of what the falseness was. Not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. So they, they were teaching some Jewish mythology or myths or made stuff made up. We don't know what it was. Doesn't matter. Commandments that they just kind of made up on their own. Notice what he said. I love this part. To the pure. Well, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Now, pure means not that you're sinless, but that you are right where God needs you to be. But both their mind... And their conscience are defiled. So their intellect and what guides them, their common sense. You know, Jiminy Cricket says, let your conscience be your guide. But really, the Holy Spirit's our guide. I've heard people say, I must follow my conscience. Well, okay, but your conscience can take you to the wrong place. But ultimately, the Holy Spirit must guide us. They profess to know God. Well, this is harsh. But by their deeds, they deny him. Well, I know God. You know people like this? Oh, all the time. Come across people. Oh, yeah. Preacher, I love, I love Jesus. Oh, I believe the Bible. And you look at their life, and there's nothing. Now, 
I, I, say that, I haven't said this in a while, but I, I, I tend to say it. You can look at a snapshot of someone's life and say, oh man, you're messed up. Or you can look at the whole picture, the whole video. Probably some of you I shouldn't use the term video. You can look at the whole live stream of their life. Is that better? Live stream be the right term to your generation? Okay. You're like the young, one young, youngest person. Well, mentally you're not, but you're like the youngest person. In anyone's life, you can see the snapshot and say, oh, man. But what he's saying is look at the whole thing. Look at how they, they live. And that's the disturbing thing is look at someone who's claiming Christ, but by their belief and their behavior, it's inconsistent. Long-term problems, not short-term, long-term problems. And so this is what happens from within the church. It hurts the church, not from what's coming from the outside, but what's coming from the inside. And so he says this. They are detestable and disobedient and worthless, not in their value, but for any good deed. They're not worthless in their value or detestable or disobedient, but the way they live. Now, I think what this says in many ways to all of us, and I read Titus and I love, you know, I realize as I get a little bit older, the books that I neglected when I was younger, I learned to really appreciate when I'm older. Hebrews, I love Hebrews. It's just, I just love it. Titus. Um. And what it's a reminder to me as a, as a follower of Jesus that my life has to be consistently pursuing Christ. I may, I may have some, I know when I get to be with the Lord, he's going to look at some of my minor points of doctrine and say, ah, you were off on that. Eh, you know, you didn't quite have that right. So-and-so was actually correct and you were wrong. You know, I don't know if I have to apologize to anybody in heaven, maybe but, you know, but I know when he looks at how I believed my faith and how I lived and treated people, especially those who were lost, I'll be okay. Because there's the pursuit of what is according to Christ. And I remember when, as a young minister, I was so discouraged by all the controversy in the Southern Baptist life, and now I look back and I think, well, it was worth it. It was painful and it was worth it. Because I know that despite all our many problems, and Baptists have a lot of problems, millions of them, because we've got millions of people. But our, our, our fundamental belief system is good. And because of that, we're, we're going to be able to help people come to faith in Christ. And and that is hugely concerned. And when I know that, like our church, and we got wonderful people at our church, and I know because we have so many wonderful people at our church who really want to follow Jesus and honor God, we're going to help people come to faith. And I don't, I don't worry about those things. I don't worry about what's going to happen to our church. I don't worry about us dying. I don't worry about any of those things because I understand that we are pursuing the truth of Christ. 
we're not inviting error to come in and tear us apart. Now, I will say this. You should always make sure that the person who teaches and preaches to you believes the Bible is the word of God, that it is truth without any mixture of error, and believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, fully God, fully man, believes in the virgin birth, and believes in the resurrection. I will tell you this. I've interviewed with a lot of churches over the years. Most of them are far more concerned with whether or not I'm a Calvinist, and most of them don't even know what a Calvinist really is, or my dispensational views, or they're concerned with uh, you know, my, you know, in the Times views, or some about whether or not I think this should happen, or can, uh, women, can women do this or do that. Rarely have they ever asked me my view of Scripture and of the incarnation and the resurrection. They assume, I believe correctly, should never do that. To better to insult me by asking me those questions and make me explain my view of Scripture and Jesus. And if I get it right, then you can worry about all those other things. If they are important to you or not, that's fine. So, that is it. I did not mean to insult any Methodist. Please forgive me. There are times I do intend to insult you. Today was not that day. But if it's any help, I insult Southern Baptists all the time. Because I is one. And we're fun. Listen, nobody is more fun to pick on than self-righteous Southern Baptists who, you know, <laughs> with all of our beliefs about all sorts of things, we're a pretty easy group to pick on. And a lot of people do. So we'll see y'all. Thank you.